Welcome to UHN Seeds of Science podcast, a show by UHN trainees showcasing how today's junior researchers are growing in their scientific fields. Over this podcast series, you will hear from a wide range of UHN masters, PhD, and postdoctoral trainees across the different UHN research sites. My name is Rima. I'm your host for this week's episode. Today, I talked to Dr. Leif Somatis, a postdoctoral fellow co-supervised in two labs that are part of KITE, the research arm of the Toronto Rehabilitation Institute at UHN. Leif's PhD research used upper limb robotics technology that can characterize impairments in various clinical populations, from transient ischemic attacks to multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, or migraines. His current research focuses on developing digital speech biomarkers for neurological disorders to support clinical decision-making. In this episode, he shares the impact that inspirational individuals had on him during his scientific journey, and he also discusses the challenges of choosing between medicine, academia, and industry career paths, where he eventually decided to transition into industry in the digital health space. Whether it's a career in industry, a spacious multi-car garage to tinker in, or a tropical vacation, Leif has now defined specific goals so he can make those dreams reality. So I hope you all enjoy learning about Leif's impressive research and scientific journey as much as I did. So welcome Leif, we're so happy to have you here. Just to start off, can you let us know about what lab you're currently training or working in? Yeah, so um, I'm actually co-supervised right now, I have been since I started. Uh, my One of my supervisors is in the Department of Speech-Language Pathology at U of T, and the other one is in the Department of Computer Science. Uh, so uh, in Speech-Language Pathology, I'm supervised by Dr. Yana Yunisova, and in Computer Science, I'm supervised by Dr. Babak Tati. Great. So in general, broadly speaking, what field are you currently in, and how did you get into this field of research? It's difficult to really nail down a specific field. Um, I'm in speech research formally, but uh, one of the core elements of that is the development of digital technologies and digital tools for health science purposes and neurological assessment, uh, which I I guess is a bit of a mouthful. It it makes a lot more sense in context uh, of how I got here. So really my, my background was in life sciences. I did neuroscience and master's and PhD, but in my PhD, uh, my focus was on using robots to uh, assess upper arm movements. And so that kind of got me into the whole uh, using, you know, new technologies or, you know, high performance, you know, granular technologies to measure uh, neurological impairments. And then that sort of poured it into what I'm doing now, which is more focused on finding clinical applications of things like uh, speech analyses, um, computer vision for measuring facial movements and things like that. That's all really fascinating work that you've been doing and we can focus a little bit on your previous work because you have some publications that you did in your PhD and so we were wondering what are those publications if you can talk a little bit about them and like the take-home message of that research that you did. Sure, Um, so previous publications in, in mainly my PhD uh, focused on using a kinarm robot, which is this kind of exoskeleton type robot that you move your upper arms in and it extracts information about you know the quality of the movement, you know how accurate you are moving around in space and how quickly you move, etc. And so in a lot of different neurological disorders um, or neurodegenerative disorders, this sort of process is impaired for a variety of different reasons. And the core, I guess, if you had to boil it down to one kernel uh, of my research 
program was you know, using this technology to extract different metrics that were related to different uh, disease phenotypes, for example. So some of the publication, most of the publications I did actually were really focused on uh, characterizing these impairments in different clinical populations. So my main line of research was in people who had transient ischemic attacks, um, but there was also uh, a study where we did similar assessments on people with multiple sclerosis, people with epilepsy, uh, people with ALS, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, and also people with migraines. So just kind of the whole, the whole alphabet of, uh, of potential brain disorders. I honestly think it's really fascinating how you can apply the technology to so many different conditions. Um, I think that's really valuable, especially for translating it to clinics. I wanted you to kind of maybe describe a little bit for the listeners, because I feel like when I first think of robotics, I think of like prosthetic robotics. So maybe you can describe like how it is, like, is it like strapped across their limbs or how does it work? Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's, that's definitely, um, a good distinction to make. So thank you for, uh, asking the clarifier because I, that's honestly something that we got from reviewers for some of the papers. Sometimes they're like, isn't a robot like supposed to be a moving thing, you know? Um, but yeah, in the, in this sense, uh, the robot is a measurement tool strictly. So it does, it did have motors, like it could, it could move the arms as needed, mm. but primarily um, it would be used as a position sensor and velocity sensor. So you would, um, depending on the robot we were using, because there were different ones, we had ones where you, the best way to, to put it, it's kind of like an armchair, mm-hmm. you rest your arms on the armchair, only in this case they're kind of troughs that support your uh, lower arm and your upper arm, and then you move them around in space mm-hmm. and there's um, some motors that are connected to the uh, armatures that are uh, sitting over your shoulders that measure the position of the joints and that's one type and then the other type is much simpler it's just a pair of handles that you grab and you can move them around in space and in both of these you're shown kind of uh, it's kind of like augmented reality but augmented reality before it was cool project stuff down onto a semi-silvered uh, like semi-transparent screen. So you can see your arms moving around under the screen, but um, you can also see feedback of the task that you're doing. And so that was kind of the paradigm. And then from there, there's a bunch of different, you know, behavioral tasks that you would do. So that that's kind of how it's like a, a quote-unquote robot. Mm-hmm. It's very sophisticated. Like when I used to think of movement research, I often think of EMGs or electromyography. But this gives you additional information because it's also dealing with posture and everything, correct? Yeah, yeah. So there was there were extensions to do posture. So um, this wasn't my research. Mm-hmm. There's a, a postdoc who I think is now um, a research assistant in the lab, uh, Catherine Lowry. Uh, her, her focus was mainly on um, doing kind of postural studies. So people would, in this case, use the one where you just grab the handles. Um, and then they would stand on like a balance plate and they would move and you could see, you know, what the patterns of, of forces were in the force plates on the ground compared to, you know, their acceleration of their arm during a specific movement or maybe if the arm is perturbed, like how does their trunk and, and lower limbs respond to that? Mm-hmm.
So I was reading the paper you had on transient ischemic attacks and thought it was really cool that you can use robotics for motor behavioral assessments to characterize the persistence of impairment in TIA. Um, but one question I had because it's measuring motor impairment, were all the strokes only in the motor cortex area or is this picking up on something that's more of a general cognitive issue because it can be assessed in different conditions like migraines? It's a, it's a great question. Um, so for that study in particular, the, the most clinically interesting part of it is that there's not really a stroke to talk about. Mm. So the, the definition of a TIA is that it's imaging negative. Okay. So, you know, you have stroke-like symptoms or what have you, but if you get scanned on a CT or, as it was updated later, in an MRI, there's supposed to be no lesion visible, right? So um, the best we can do to, you know, localize where it, this, it would be or where the, uh, the injury would have been would be based on the symptoms only, mm -hmm. which, you know, is, is problematic in some ways um, because usually um, patients aren't ready with their notebook to write down exactly what they felt when they felt it. Mm -hmm. um, so by the time they get to an ER, you know, not only have the symptoms resolved, but I mean, they were kind of panicking for a couple hours and rightfully so, because you think you're having a stroke possibly. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're not exactly keeping track. And so considering these symptoms, it can be very difficult to really pin down what was going on. And that's kind of the value of these uh, after the fact behavioral assessments is that you can actually hone in on, well, okay, where, where in the overall system is the impairment? And it could be in motor regions, as you suggested, or it could be in more frontal, you know, cognitive controlling regions. Mm -hmm. um, but for something like a TIA, it's often that uh, it affects like a broader network or broader system. It's not really localized to a specific region mm -hmm. of interest. It's more of a you've knocked down a domino somewhere in the brain and somewhere else another domino is going to fall over kind of thing. Mm -hmm. That really does make sense. And I think a key part of the paper was that you also assessed these patients over time too, and you could see the changes in their behavior long-term, correct? Yeah, yeah. No, that was, um, that, that was honestly one of the most interesting parts of that project because, like, aside from the fact that it's supposed to be no, like, tissue injury in the brain, it's also supposed to resolve to baseline very quickly. So, um, you know, if you go back far enough in, in history, and it's far enough that it's actually history now, um, the definition was just 24 hours, like, just no mm -hmm. qualifications whatsoever. If you got better in 24 hours, must not have been a stroke. Mm -hmm. And then at 24 hours plus one minute, they, they're like, well, actually, maybe that was a stroke, you know? Um, so, you know, it's this kind of ridiculous arbitrariness that you try to overcome. Yeah, it's definitely really helpful to study these tools to at least give us more of an objective measure for characterization. I feel like when you're in a specific field, you kind of know how every lab has a certain like distinction. Like, is there anything about your lab within that field that is like special to your lab? Something that you guys do? Um, my my supervisor 
co-developed a uh, a kind of main theory of uh, human motor control. Wow. And so uh, that was kind of the defining or one of the defining characteristics of my lab. Mm -hmm. And from that, the robot was developed. So it was kind of a very much like, you know, the, it's, it's, it's optimal feedback control. Like that's what the lab is about. And it was for, you know, from way before I started to continuing. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So those are some great accomplishments from your lab. But we'd also like to know with the more personal questions, what is something you're most proud of? It could be some of the research we talked about. It could be, you know, some experience that you had. But what is the moment that you would say in your scientific career thus far that you are most proud of? Ooh, um, that is a really good question. I, I would say that, um, gosh, you know, I would say probably one of them at least that I can think of right now is, is getting my first paper published. Mm. It wasn't a super great paper. Um, I mean, it was fine, but, um, you know, it, it, that was really like, at the time, that was my big thing, right? Like that, and I, I think anyone could, could echo mm -hmm. that, you, know, you get your first publication. Um, it really feels like you've, uh, you, you've sort of stepped up to the plate in science a little bit. Like, hey, I can Google my name and I'll find like an academic record is, is a really cool thing when it happens for the first time. Yeah, honestly, I think that's going to resonate with so many trainees that are listening in because I felt that way too. I, I got my first paper published um, last year, so quite recently, and it definitely feels like, wow, this is what it's been leading up to, you know, this moment that you finally get to put your work out there and anyone can read it. Congratulations on the paper. Thank you. So it's been amazing hearing about all your research and all the great work that you have been able to accomplish. Um, but we've been wondering if you could also share some of the challenges, because I feel like that's a very important part of going through this growth um, in our scientific journeys. So could you let us know a specific challenge that you want to share and how you overcame it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say my biggest challenge was uh, for a while having absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, I had ideas in, you know, going back as far as early in high school, kind of what I wanted to do, but I, I feel like as I went through the process that I started to learn more and more about what it was that I would be doing, um, and, you know, it, it stopped really resonating with me. Like, I wanted to go to med school, and uh, my, originally it was be a pediatrician, um, and so I, you know, did the whole, like, I'm going to take all the pre-med courses and go to life sciences and do, write the MCAT and all that stuff. And then, I don't know, one, um, didn't do all that great on the MCAT. So, you know, there's that. And also, um, I don't know, it, uh, it just like, it didn't, I didn't feel myself motivated to pursue it anymore, really. And so that kind of sent me into a tailspin for a couple of years. And then I, you know. I'm sure a lot of people can uh, understand this and say, well, why not graduate school, right? Um, and so I, I guess I kind of bounced around there for a while too, trying to figure out what it was that I wanted to do. I, I would say that, yeah, my, my, my biggest challenge was really not having a concrete plan about what I wanted to do. I definitely feel like that is, that is quite something that's really common for people who are in the life sciences as well. Because I remember in my first year, I did undergrad at U of T, 
and we were in the like first year life science course and it's in con hall so it's like the huge dome and there were like two thousand kids and then like the professor goes who wants to go to med school and like everyone Every raised their hand <laughs> yeah and obviously everyone ends up finding a different path that they're passionate about afterwards but yeah it's always the process <laughs> yeah yeah did you have any like I guess like aha moments where you're like oh wait this is actually really what I'm curious about or what I want to go into or was it just like slowly building over time like just as you learn different things mixture to be mm -hmm. honest um there were gradual accumulations for sure and then there were inflection points um i would say probably my first one was in third year when i took my first introductory neuroscience course i thought oh this is really cool stuff mm -hmm. and um and the professor i had at the time was also really really like really passionate about the material um, and so that really carried over into, you know, how people perceive what he's teaching, at least me. Um, and then, yeah, there were a couple other ones along the way as well. I guess that leads into the next question really well, because we were wondering who, like, has inspired you, like, whether it could be a professor or, um, you know, anyone other than your PI that may have inspired you to go with this research. Yeah, anyone other than my PI. Well, uh, when it comes to, when it comes to the research, hmm, um, I don't know. I mean, I always, it's, it's a cliche answer for sure, but I mean, my, my parents were always huge inspirations. Mm -hmm. Um, like my dad's an engineer. And so that really kind of informed, uh, a lot of how I approach problems even today. Like I've had people say like, Oh, you think about that, like an engineer. And you know, sometimes you wonder whether or not that's a joke. Um, but it, it definitely is something that I've internalized. So mm -hmm. that's, that's one, um, in terms of other inspirations, I mean, I would have said, um, my my master's supervisor was very influential but if we're going non-pi i would actually say the the tech that i worked with in my master's degree hmm. like she was a very very diligent worker and just like a very warm person to talk to who was very encouraging supportive um and so yeah i mean it kind of gave me like a bit more of a relaxed view of like working in a lab like you know hey don't worry about that like you can deal with that. It's fine. You know, like a very, um, like a very anchoring kind of personality, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's so valuable to have people like that who can kind of show you that, you know, you can try and it's okay if, you know, things don't work out and you can always figure it out because that's part of doing research. So for the last part, um, we were interested in what excites you most about this field of research and how it can develop in the future. So what do you see as like the trajectory for this field? So yeah, I mean, that, that's a really great question. Um, and it's honestly, the work that I'm doing right now is still very like, it's still very new even in its field. like. Um, using machine learning to assess speech uh, like facial movements and, and acoustics is, is still very much in its infancy um, this it's kind of uh, because the complexity of, of speech motor control is significantly higher than that of a lot of other domains like just objectively because there's more muscles it, it's harder to get a direct reading of a signal it's kind of lagged behind other domains mm. of 
motor research by a couple of decades, right? So where, you know, upper limb research was in the early 2000s, like, hey, look, robots are a thing. We can measure things objectively. We're just kind of getting there now with speech. Mm -hmm. like, and so I think that's really cool. Like, I think that, you know, there's this kind of new frontier of, uh, of different applications, different ways to scale uh, applications that's entirely new. Um, I mean, where I think it's going, um, I think, you know, certainly before the pandemic, it was a thing that maybe patients should be assessed from home. You know, maybe there's some benefits to that. Environmental ones, patient uh, well-being ones, caregiver burden, you know. And then now that we've had, you know, a couple years of people staying home, um, we've really seen that, yeah, you know, this is a thing that we need to push this field towards. And so I think that's one of the most exciting future applications. Yeah, I mean, that sounds honestly really exciting. And it's interesting that like, how the pandemic affected it as well. Aside from the field itself, but more personal to you, where do you see yourself in five or ten years? What do you want to do for a career? I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently in the last few months. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in staying in uh, like a research domain, but I think more in, in the side of you know, industry as opposed to being in academia. Um, I just, yeah, I, uh, I just, I, I want to have some flexibility to pursue, you know, research that I, uh, that I want to, but from kind of the perspective that I've gotten uh, from people I've talked to who are in industry, from doing my current industry collaboration, um, there's really uh, kind of a more collaborative view uh, to doing, you know, research. It's like, it's very, it's very uh, task focused, like we're trying to solve a specific problem. And there's less, I, I find at least in my experience of, of academia that there's a lot of siloing or that there can be a lot of siloing. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I feel like um, the industry environment is a bit more flexible in that way. Yeah, I feel like um, a lot of people don't really consider industry, but it's something that could be valuable for a lot of students to look into. So I was wondering, like, what kind of advice would you give for students who are like, I, I'm, I'm thinking of industry, but I'm not really even sure where to start or like um, how I would get there for my next step. So let's say they're in their PhD and they're going to their postdoc and they're like, I, I'm thinking industry is the end goal, but I just don't know how to get there. Talk to people. Yeah. It's the, you know, if I had to boil it down to, what is that, three words? Three words. <laughs> um, I, uh... I didn't really even start to crystallize the idea that I wanted to do that until I had exposure to both sides. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think it's important for students to experience both so that they can really decide um, yeah. what's better for them. Okay, Lee, so that has been an amazing interview. Could you give us like a fun fact about yourself? Tell us something you love doing outside of work or something you'd love to do one day if given the chance. Um, I'm a gearhead. I love cars. And so um, if I could, my, my, my dream uh, situation, I guess, at home is having a multi-car garage where I can like 
work on any kind of project that I want to. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds like quite the dream to just have that. <laughs> okay. And then we're just going to do some rapid fire questions here at the end. Oh boy. So, pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Okay. Salty or sweet? Sweet. Texting or talking on the phone? Texting. Would you rather be able to speak every language or be able to talk to animals? Ooh, that's tough. Um, I, I think talking to animals would be rad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, invisibility or super strength? Super strength. Okay, last two ones. What's your favorite car? Bread, pasta, rice, or potatoes? Ooh, pasta. Pasta. And then the last one, tropical island holiday or a backcountry camping adventure? Tropical island, 10 times out of 10. Wow, okay, <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, I really appreciate it and yeah thank you for putting this together it was uh it was great thank you everyone for listening i hope you enjoyed getting to know a little bit about leaf and his scientific journey thus far if you'd like to reach out to him his twitter handle and uhn email is posted in the episode description available at the ort website if you'd like to be featured on the seeds of science podcast please reach out to us we hope you enjoy getting to know uhn trainees through this podcast and stay tuned for the next episode in two weeks time Seeds of Science is proudly supported by the UHN Office of Research Trainees with special thanks to Drs. Amanda Berry and Linda Penn. Hosting, recording, and editing by Dr. Emily Mills and Remel Sayed. Outreach management by Dr. Olivia McHale and Ariana Besick.